0: This is the Level Up Engineering Podcast, where we talk with some of the most successful engineering leaders who reveal actionable management insights that help you take your developer team to the next level. This episode is brought to you by CodingSans, a software development agency building web applications from design to delivery with React, Node.js, and Angular. Check them out at codingsands.com.
1: Hi everyone, Karolina Tóth speaking, and this is the Level Up Engineering Podcast. In every episode, we talk with accomplished engineering leaders about different kinds of leadership challenges they face. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to share with you that if you sign up for the Level Up Engineering newsletter, you're going to receive new episodes two weeks prior to them being released to the rest of the world. So it's a really good deal. Click the link in the description and join our engineering leadership community. Today, I have a special guest, Charlie Roman. He has quite an impressive list of experiences on his LinkedIn, but currently he is a technical director at Respawn Entertainment where he works on a very exciting project. Today, welcome to a special edition of Level Up Engineering. It's called Stories, and we talk about leaders of successful products and what it takes to manage teams who are creating really successful products. So without further ado, please, Charlie, tell us a bit about you, what you do and what we should know about you.
2: Thank you. Uh, yeah, I mean, just to say, it's it's great to be here. I'm Charlie. I'm currently a, Re- a technical director at Respawn Entertainment. I'm working on a, a Star Wars FBS at the moment. Um, before this, I worked at, at Riot Games for for six years, working on a project called Project L, It was a League of Legends fighting game. I was a senior engineering manager there. And before that, I worked at a. I did the Silicon Valley thing. Did a startup. At a place called Radiant Entertainment, that was actually how I got into to Riot. They purchased our company because we had made a semi-successful free-to-play fighting game called Rising Thunder. So they came in, were were happy with what we did, and, and ended up uh, buying the studio. So outside of work, love to to play games. Obviously, being in in gaming, but you know, also love to get time away from the computer, biking, hiking, camping with the family. Consider myself an amateur woodworking. Um, Wow. Person. You know, something you know, everybody's kind of picked stuff up in the in the pandemic as well, I think. So, you know, I started sourdough bread for a while. Also did kombucha. I, I continue the kombucha brewing, but haven't uh, continued on with the sourdough. It's just a little too much work for me. But
1: Nice. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So, as you said, Star Wars FPS game. Um I know it is not out yet, so yeah. We will we will talk about the, the leadership challenges behind it, but first, uh, let's define for our listeners what product this is, uh, what we should know about it.
2: Yeah, so at Respawn, we work on, on video games, obviously. The Star Wars FPS is, is in the Star Wars universe. Um, it's a first-person shooter. Uh, it's really all we've talked about with the game so far, because we're still pretty early in development, but, um, you know, I'm super excited to be be part of the steam response, made a lot of other first person shooters that are extremely well received, like apex legends and Titanfall. So we're we're carrying on a strong tradition of, of making cool video games, so.
1: how awesome. And so we heard a little bit about how you ended up um, at riot. Um, how did you end up here did today? They, did they approach you? What was the what was the, the process?
2: Yeah, that that's a Great question. It's actually a pretty interesting story, at least for me, I guess. So I was pretty happy at Riot. And I think a lot of people can attest to maybe being on LinkedIn and just getting a bunch of messages all the time. And and half of, probably more than half of them, you don't even look at, take a second glance at. But uh, I remember Respawn contacted me about the position. And being happy at Riot, there was only probably a handful of studios that could have reached out and, you know, would have piqued my interest. And Respawn was one of them. So, I started talking with them. And, you know, once we got to talking, I kind of understood the position a little bit better. I got to know the project after I'd, I'd come in and talk with the team. And the opportunity really turned into a no brainer for me. You know, I'd been working on a team I'd hired at Riot and kind of built up that team over time. Had a fantastic team, a lot of even like new grads who I'd been the only manager. So, like, leaving that team was really hard for me. But, I just couldn't give up the opportunity to, to come to Respawn, so.
1: Thank you. What um, what really was the opportunity? Um, you are currently working on this uh, Star Wars FPS game. Is that why you joined, or did you work on something else before?
2: Yeah, so, I mean, I was working on a, a game before. We were a fairly big team. I had a 13-person engineering team total that I was working on, but... Um, I only managed about half the team at the time. So taking on the technical director position kind of was that that next step for me, you know, getting to build out the entire team. I was joining a pretty small team at the time. I think there was seven engineers on the the team and they wanted to grow to over 20. So um, I just saw it as kind of the, the next challenge in, in kind of my career. I also wanted to... At Riot, they kind of split the two domains, kind of technical and management. Um, that's why I was an engineering manager there. And I always liked having a little bit more both. Like, I don't like being too far outside of the technology realm too much. Like, I get like to get my hands dirty more often. So I think it was a better blend of the two positions for me, still being able to be more technical in nature. so
1: mm-hmm. And now you are directing a larger group of people or is it, is it a smaller team? How should we envision um, it?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty big team now. Uh, what? Well, yeah, I mean, there was seven or eight when I joined and we're up to about 16 now. I've got five open positions, so we're looking to get to, to 20 or so by the end of the year. So,
1: Wow. Nice. Nice. So what, what does this engineering team look like? You are having quite a few people. How do you manage them? What are kind of the daily struggles or daily <laughs> uh, tasks that you have to do?
2: Yeah, I mean, for me, the the daily, stru- I mean, as a, as a manager, I think in the pandemic, and I think this is one of the things that kind of even showed me that this was a possibility for me is The pandemic kind of changed the management angle for me because I had always, I think we went home for the pandemic and, you know, originally we were like, oh, it's going to be two weeks. And I was like, yeah, that sounds good because I really didn't see myself being a manager who could remote manage at the time. I just felt like there was too much that I got from being in person with somebody, you know, body language, eye contact, all those uh, all the kind of intangibles of, of management that I, that went into how I kind of interacted and, and got stuff out of somebody. So I was kind of surprised after being in, in the pandemic for a year, cause I had hired a, an engineer at uh riot during the pandemic had built a relationship with them over that time. And I think it made me realize that like, oh no, remote management is something that's possible. It's just, it's a little bit more difficult. It's a little bit different. So I actually work on a fully remote team right now. Uh, You know, I've got people on the East Coast, West Coast, up and down the coast, Seattle, Vancouver, Montreal. And I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges right now is just being able to, you know, joining a new team, um, coming in and trying to build those relationships remotely um, where I've, I've had those strong relationships in person before. And I've, ne- I've never met anybody on my team in person. It's just wow. kind of a, a crazy world to, to live in right now. I mean, we're hoping with everything opening back up, we'll be able to maybe travel somewhere together and meet up at some point. But, you know, that's going to be the exception, not the rule going forward. So uh, I think it's been it's been interesting there. Uh, you asked, like, how the team is actually set up. Um, so I think that's, that's one of the other challenges I've been... Um, I guess working on is I want to be able to empower the people on my team. I want to be able to kind of delegate the work that I have. So it's been about identifying other leaders on the team, building them up and then moving some of the, the management opportunities over to them as well. So right now I am taking on more than I want to in the long term, but I'm also coaching up one of my engineers right now to be a lead on the team. So we break into different sub So within games, I uh, have like a gameplay team, a tools and systems, uh, artificial intelligence, rendering and networking. And that's kind of where my engineers break down to. But then I, so at some point, I'd like to have a lead of all of those kind of areas so that they can have their engineers. Uh, and we're getting there, but...
1: Right. Right. Could you share a little more about how you built up the report with uh, with your, with your engineers at this company, just so not to make it sound so scary to our listeners, if they want to change positions and are getting into a new company, what was your angle?
2: Yeah, I mean, coming in I'm probably an over-preparer, if anything. So I think when I finally decided to take take the jump, one of the things for me is, is it's just it had been a while since I joined a new company. I've been working with the same people for the most part for going on seven years. So I picked up a book like The, the First 90 Days by Michael Watkins, uh, was reading that, kind of tried to build out what my plan was going to be coming in wanted to be in gathering mode more or less for the first 30 days reading that book it's very and a lot of other stuff on it it's just very very much first impression is important when you're going into a new company because you can kind of step off on the the right or the wrong foot so that was extremely important to me Um, and I knew I was coming onto an established team so you know there was a couple engineers who had worked on a previous project together I was kind of coming in over top them so I knew there was a chance that it could be a, a pretty touchy situation um, going in. So for me, management's always just been about being myself. Like, I don't want to feel like I'm putting on a face. I want people to feel empowered in their role. So it was about coming in and, and being in that information gathering mode and, and not making people feel like I was just going to come in and kind of change everything that was that was going on. I, I wanted to understand how the team worked like, obviously they had been successful in the past without me and I wanted them to be successful in the, in the future with me. And that doesn't mean coming in and, and changing everything. So I wanted to make sure that they knew that that wasn't my goal, but I was going to gather that information, kind of figure out, you know, if there were things that I needed to change that I did. So for me, you know, it's been, I have weekly one-on-ones with, with all my engineers. I think that's uh, extremely important to me just to be able to, to have that connection, not not having any, we can't meet in the, the kitchen or, you know, grabbing a drink or whatnot. So I think it's important to continue to have that time for them, not only that we can just get to know each other, but they just feel like they have some time on my calendar to, to ask me, you know, anything about anything.
1: Right, right. You mentioned that you were in gathering mode for a while and you were looking out for things that you might want to change. Did you find anything worth changing, or wh- was there sort of questionable realms where where you where you were thinking about changing some things?
2: Yeah, I I didn't want to change too much when I first came in, but I think one of the things that got in the way of that plan was just when I came in, they had had a hiring process up to that point, and it just wasn't getting the information I needed to to make a good hiring decision. So I, I really felt like even though I wanted to to hold off on making too big of changes coming in, it was something I, I needed to change immediately. So it was actually one of the first things that I, I kind of took into immediate action on, I guess. And I mean, for me, there were kind of three pillars that I wanted to, to base the changes around just so that I could kind of build up that... Uh, I wanted people to buy in, obviously, to the process, you know, changing a hiring process can be a, can be a big thing. So I wanted to explain to people, be able to explain to people why I wanted to make those changes. And, and obviously, you know, the first one's making a good hiring decision. The second one was inclusivity. And then the third one was, was candidate experience. And I wanted to, you know, have a process that kind of focused on those, those things. And I've been able to kind of stage those changes over time. Since hiring the hiring process is a big a big thing and I was I've been kind of slotting in pieces as, as they come online. So
1: mm-hmm. awesome. So now that we have talked about a change, um, mm-hmm. what has been other challenges that you have faced in this role so far? You you haven't been there for a year if I am correct. Um, yeah. what what other challenges did you have to
2: figure out i've worked on fairly large teams in the past not not in the role that i'm in but this team was coming from a fairly small team in the past there was about 20 30 people on the team Um, and right now we're we're sitting about 60 with goals to get to about 180 so i think one of the the big things i'm noticing is just the growing pains that a team goes through as they kind of hit these different phases of, of size and just the kind of different communication methods, you know, different organization that you need to make something like that, not completely just fall apart, being much more disciplined with, with your processes, like, you know, how you do task management and planning and prioritization and, and estimation. So coming in and just being able to, to build that out before we scale up the, the team too much and get comfortable with that, because it's going to get much different as I was man- mentioning kind of the the structure of the team is such that eventually a lot of the engineers won't be reporting directly to me. So, you know, making sure that we're, I'm building those relationships now so that they still feel comfortable coming to me later on if there are, there are issues. So I think scaling has been one of those things, not, not only immediately, but it's one of those things in the back of my mind about how do we continue to change communication and, and get, disseminating information to people as the team grows, because it's just going to be a, a harder and harder problem. You can't get, well, I mean, Zoom makes it a lot easier to get 180 p- people in a room, but you know, it's just not tenable to do that for everything that needs to go out to the team. So.
1: Right, right. You mentioned that you have to rely on processes as increasingly as the team grows. Um, would you care to share any of those processes for prioritization or test management or anything that you find would add value to our audience?
2: Yeah. Um, I, I like to be very, I I guess I mentioned earlier that I'm very much somebody who likes to plan and I like to have some of the big things for me is just being able to, get in front of the work. I see a lot of my job as kind of like, you know, being the the machete through the, the forest and clearing stuff out for people and kind of getting um, clarity on that. So so when they get to do their work, uh, hopefully a good amount of the questions, at least high level questions have already been answered. So the processes I kind of brought in when I came, I first implemented, we call them RFCs. They're called requests for comments. It was something I had done it, at Riot in the past, but this has meant... The whole team can use it. We use it a lot as an engineering team, but it's kind of to uh, make a proposal, say, hey, here's what the problem I see is. This is what I want to do and maybe some of the alternatives uh, that I looked at. And, and the reason I really like a process like that is because it forces people to look into the alternatives. A lot of times engineers will look at a problem and be like, ah, I know how to solve that, right? And that's great. Maybe that's the right the right thing you should be doing. But especially being early in the project, a lot of these systems that we're building are very foundational. So part of the benefit is just being also exposed to things that you you may not otherwise be used to. So, you know, going outside of your, your comfort zone, and then having that P, that document, that thing to kind of talk around with other engineers, because I, th- I think a big thing is is just being able to... Communicate your ideas, what your problem is, um, to get information from, from other people on the team.
1: So this um, is something that you do when you do like a new milestone, or how often do you, do you roll out a request for comment?
2: Yeah, it's, it's not really milestone based. It's more, uh, feature or problem based. And it really depends on how, how you see your problem. So it can be as simple as like, uh, I had a cha- uh, RFC for, you know, how we do changeless description in, in Perforce. Like, what do you put in there when you, you check in to like, how am I going to ar- ar- architect our automation system? So trying to understand what the problems are, like, here are the things we want to do with an automation system. And, and here is my proposal for how how we get that done. And these are the other things I considered. So going through that, that process and, and getting alignment on the, the team, Uh, We also have like an approval process on that. You ask for specific people, and they've kind of got to sign off on these before you move to the next steps. So really, it's not required for every piece of work, but you know, it's something I might ask for if there's a, if it's a big, if it's a big project or something like that, I might ask you for an RFC. So.
1: Right. Right. So if we are talking about challenges, uh, this is something that you have implemented these, these RFCs, um, what is your biggest challenge at the, at the moment?
2: Hiring, hiring is, is always, a uh, um, you know, having, having a bunch of pe- positions open, knowing that we need to continue to, to scale out the team. I think, um, that, that has been one of the things consistently that I've been, uh, putting a lot of my, my time into Um, as I mentioned, just, you know, being that person who's, who's getting in front of the team, making sure I'm looking out for the unknown unknowns. It's kind of a silly term, but you don't know what you don't know. And when you stop, and if you stop looking for them, then you'll never find them, you know, going to sneak up on you and and cause a lot of issues. So, um, especially in games, you know, it's, there's, it's cross-disciplinary. You know, I have artists, designers, uh, engineers, they're all checking in, Different stuff, and it has different, you know, characteristics for how it plays with the game. You know, an artist might check something in that completely ruins the performance of the game, and we gotta, you know, figure that out and how we get in front of those problems. Or, um, so, you know, part of that is just making sure that I don't feel like I'm caught unaware when things things come in. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just really hard to do that with a, a 60-person team. I can't have a conversation with everyone. Uh, so how how do I rely on my other engineers to pull that information out other department heads? So yeah, I mean, relationship building is is really big there as well.
1: So I know you have mentioned hiring as a challenge. And I'm sure being able to work on Star Wars is like a big (laughs) uh, calling for the engineers. How do you vet the engineers that you hire? What are kind of Some of the things that you ask them, I'm sure you have more Mm -hmm. engineers applying than you can, you can hire or you want to hire. I
2: think it's becoming less rare, but in the past I've I've seen kind of, you know, a lot of effort put in towards the, the engineering, you know, how you actually program side of things. I'm, I'm pretty well balanced between that and kind of like who you are as a person or the soft, just because gaming is a, extremely cross-collaborative work where I've you're not just working with other engineers, you're working with artists, you're working with designers um, a lot of the time. So being able to communicate your ideas and, and get information out of their soft skills are extremely important. So the way I structure my interviews is kind of in three different parts. I don't know if you've heard the term T-shaped engineers before.
1: No, uh, please enlighten.
2: Yeah, so... T-shape, at least in, in how we look at it in, in games, and it has applications to other tech as well. But like across the top of your T is is just the breadth of your engineering knowledge. So, you know, you're able to walk across the stack, like take something from implementing it on the server side to kind of that final what the user sees on the front end. And we do that part of the interview through a take-home test, and it's we make it as short as possible um we found 4 hours is about as as short as we can get that um and then have candidates bring that on site with them the the results of that and kind of do a code review with us i really like that process just because it's i don't know interviewing is is an interesting thing cuz it's it's not really like work at all like when you're actually trying to get it it's how it's like to work with somebody a lot of interview processes don't get at that so we have them bring that in. We do a code review with them. So it's very much more of what you would get in an, an environment with us where you've got to be able to talk about your code, explain how you problem solved and everything like that. So that's kind of the, the breadth of the T. But um, then the the line down is kind of what your specialization is. So, um, or your depth, we call it broad tech and, and deep tech. And that the, the depth of your T could be, you know, you're a rendering engineer, you're really good at graphics or networking or, or gameplay. So we have different um, kind of rubrics that we use in those different areas to, to get at those specific things so that we can kind of understand what is the thing you're really good at that you're bringing to the team, along with having that kind of base um, engineering fundamentals. Mm-hmm. So then the last part of that is just kind of, more of the soft cultural things, like you know, how do you communicate? How do you collaborate? Are you growth mindset? Um, those kind of things to understand what it's going to be like to work with you day to day.
1: That sounds like a very fun process where you <laughs> get to meet the different aspects of the same person how do you collaborate with the other departments? You mentioned that there are artists and designers and engineers, of course. Um, What are some of the processes with which you enable your teams to to work together seamlessly? Yeah, I think it's one of I mean, it's the thing that keeps me
2: in, in games is being able to work with all those I guess you would consider them maybe more creative disciplines. Not to say engineering isn't creative. Like we definitely are able to, to do a lot of cool stuff, but, you know, working with artists and designers, it's just, it's just different. They have different expectations. They work in different ways sometimes. So I think for me, uh, and this, I guess maybe goes back to your question of a challenge when I came onto the, the team. It was it was very much separated into the different disciplines. So, you know, art was doing what they needed in design and then engineering. And it's just not something, at least in in gaming, that I'm was happy with. So I pitched the idea of forming into what I what we call pods, but they're just basically cross functional teams. And that's where We've, we organize the work around the features uh, like, oh, we're, you know, we're going to be building out the, the movement system or weapons or whatnot. And we can kind of organize around the work and get everybody in the room who's important to that work getting done, you know, artists, designers, uh, producers, engineers. So that's how we organize together. And that allows, you know, engineers and designers and artists to be talking a lot more frequently than they might otherwise if you organize as like. Hey, design has this thing they want to build and they're going to throw it over to the wall to engineering and engineering now builds this thing and then throws it back. And is this what you want? No. Okay. We're going to tweak it in this way and just getting them in the room. So those conversations happen on a much tighter schedule. It's one of those things that everybody kind of expects how you organize the team to be a, a silver bullet. Like I I propositioned this thing and we organized it this way. I was like, I realized there's gonna be other, you know, problems that come out of organizing in this way, right? It's, it's the interesting thing of project management. Like you can optimize for different scenarios, but you're always gonna have those things where your, your organization doesn't quite. Um, and, and one of the things I knew about this type of organization is it's much, obviously harder for uh, the departments to stay in line when you've got engineers across, you know, 10 12 different pods you then need to start having those structures where engineers can talk to each other and that's where some of the the other systems that I put in place I mentioned the RFCs but also like TDDs technical design documents those are those are the areas where I had implemented those things and I was confident that I could keep engineers in alignment with each other and it was much more important that my engineers were sitting next to designers and artists to kind of have that cross collaboration on the daily basis. So that's kind of how we've, it's the organization we're in right now. And that's, that's kind of how we've been operating, um, for a while now.
1: I am also working with the uh, designers and engineers, and, uh, I am just dying to ask you to tell me about the technical design documents. What yeah. are those?
2: Yeah. So I, I guess our process at a high level is, is kind of the first part is is information gathering, getting out requirements. So, working with designers, hey, what do you what are your goals for the system? What do you want to build? Getting out all those requirements so you can obviously engineer the the best thing that, that makes sense for that space. And then, if you feel like it's necessary, it's the RFC. So TDDs kind of come in at the next stage. Technical design documents in our our flow are very much meant to be able to communicate the you know the technical design of what you want to build to other engineers on the team, and it, and it's kind of twofold. It helps you get a better understanding putting something down on paper before you just just go off and uncode it. But it also allows other people to kind of understand where you want to go with it. Hey, here's why I want to do it in this way. Uh, be able to take the expertise of a lot of the team. You know, other people may have done this before and. Oh, you know, you're gonna hit a roadblock when you when you try to, to do it in this way or whatnot. So having that document to kind of talk around, especially early before you've already gone off and, and started coding stuff, uh, I find extremely extremely valuable. We've had multiple conversations around those documents and it's always it's always interesting how much comes out of those things. That, oh, I hadn't really thought of that. Oh, that's that's good. I need to take that into account when I'm building out the system and I don't know in, in my career, it's not something that always gets done. Like being able to build the time into your calendar to, or your processes to account for those, those different things, getting that alignment early. Sometimes it's just, Oh, I'm just going to jump in and start making this thing. Right. And then, you know, six months down the road, you might be like, Oh, well, this isn't exactly. And I need to refactor it now. because It's not what I need. And it's not to say uh, you can do all the process in the world. You're still probably going to have to end up refactoring stuff. But it's just how do you get ahead of, of those things and hopefully cut down on the number of things that end up not being exactly what you need going forward? But
1: mm-hmm. Right. right. It's hard, right, it's hard
2: right. to quantify those things, right? When you tell somebody they're doing something that's keeping them from having pain in the future that they'll never experience, if they it's it's a weird thing to t- be like, yeah, you need to spend this, you know, a couple days to write this thing, but you'll never know whether you need it or not because you may not experience the pain in the future. Right? Because you did it right. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I love it. I love it. I think that's true of all of our decisions. We can never know what would have happened, but we can just hope that we are in a fairly good place.
2: It, it's interesting because I, I'm definitely somebody who's like, it, I mentioned all these processes, I guess, but I'm very much somebody who's not process for process sake, like just because I have these things doesn't mean we should be doing them for everything. Like if you're just writing a very small system, it's like, no, just skip, skip that. You can go right to the, the coding. It's not meant to be like a very rigid system. Cause I always find those, the systems that are extremely rigid, it's like you get people who or grumbling like oh why do i have to do this like uh, i'm spending two days on this when it i could have been done by now and it's very much where if if somebody comes to me with a new process and they can't explain to me why they think it's important or what benefits it gives then like i'm like no like let's we're not we're not going to do that because you think that's how the team should work right like you got to be able to explain to me what the what the benefits of that process are and why we would kind of slot that in so
1: Thank you for the clarification. I am sure a a lot of people will, uh, you know, breathe easier if they, if they hear that. Let's talk about what you're doing. Is there any kind of customer feedback that you get? Are you, are you at some kind of an alpha test or beta test uh, yet? Do you, do you use any feedback or, or is there anywhere where you get feedback from?
2: Yeah, we're we're still pretty early, but games are kind of I, I don't I haven't worked in traditional tech a whole lot, but I think it's one of those things that it's it's interesting cuz our customers are, are our players and a lot of us are players as well. So the first line of defense there is always kind of ourselves. Like we need to be playing our game, we need to be giving feedback on it all, all the time. Otherwise, we're kind of missing out on a key benefit that that hiring people who enjoy games like I I play hundreds of, of games as well. So when we're first looking for that line of feedback, it's it's just setting up those those things where we can get the feedback of the team. Slack channels, different feedback mechanisms through there. So I think the team ends up being the, the first line of, of defense there as far as how we get feedback. Um, but we're always looking big tests like that are always a large cost on, on teams so you have to balance the the benefits you see of getting going to something like that because you know we've all been in those situations where it's like oh we need to get this demo ready for something and and the work that goes into making the demo sometimes that's that's not work you would otherwise do right and if you're doing that all the time then you end up doing a lot of stuff that that, that doesn't really impact the game long term so you got to weigh those the benefits of the feedback you get versus the time that you're investing in it. So, we've done one much larger test. Uh, there's actually a internal team to Respawn called our user experience research team, and they were able to work with us and kind of understand what questions we wanted to get out of having people play test and you know making sure that we were getting that value right for the the work that we we're putting in. So, those are still very much more internal. We're not. I don't know how far off we are, but, uh, we're still a bit away from an alpha or a beta, so.
1: All right. Thank you. Have you had any failed experiments, uh, any processes that you have tried to implement and they turned out not to be right or any changes that you wanted to make, but didn't or did, but they weren't as much fun as you were hoping them to be?
2: It's a good question. Um, it's hard to think of like big ones. Cause I like to think that I'm always failing, like at least in, as far as like the, the little things you do and how you have those failures and you learn from them and you're able to adapt and stuff like that. I mean, just on revamping the hiring process, it was about getting something out there, getting it tested. Oh, it's, it's not succeeding in these, these ways. And how do we pull that into the next revision of it failure can kind of be a a bad word i don't know maybe there's a better word we can we can think for it but uh, you know i i very much try to stress to my team that that failures aren't aren't bad so it's like uh, i think the common saying is what fail fast like being able to have have those failures being able to learn from them cuz i mean it's really only when you don't learn from a failure do they truly become meaningless like you know, I failed in the same way I failed in the past, and I should have learned the lesson back then, but I didn't, and I did it again. Like those are the those are the real frustrating ones. So I don't know; it's hard to think of like a, a big example, but it. it's just like one of those things where I feel like I'm failing all the time and learning. I mean, management management is literally that. Like managing humans is so challenging, and there's so many different people in the world. It's just like how do you learn to? to manage all those people. And a lot of times it's just getting in there and, and making mistakes and, and learning from those mistakes. It's why I mentioned earlier, like that that's one of the things that we look to hire on. It's just like, do you have the, the mindset where you can take those things and, and learn from them and then hopefully be better in the future, right? Because... I don't know, it's it's a very human experience to, to fail. Like if we're not failing we're not pushing ourselves, right? So
1: I love that. I think it's very design thinking oriented. I uh I am a design thinking facilitator and uh we always lay out these rules for for our workshops, you know, like like fail fast and yeah. you know, you kind of want to get out all the things that are not working <laughs> fast enough so that you can get to the good part of, uh, of creating something that's actually successful. So I love your answer. Thank you.
2: <laughs> it's a it's a hard thing to instill on in people because I mean, failing is, is putting yourself out there. It's why I think we probably need a better word for it. Uh, maybe it's just one of those things where we end up changing it needing to change it every couple of years. But I don't know, it's just, it's hard to, to really make people feel comfortable. They, they feel like They've always got to be successful in it. If your if your organization isn't set up to to kind of allow people to fail, like if you end up parking on those failures later on in like performance reviews or or you're kind of cutting against the goals you you have, right? Because people are going to be like, "Well, you're saying I should fail, but you're also coming back to it like you know it's part of my performance review. Like you you didn't you didn't succeed at these things. It's like you're undermining yourself." there if if your organization isn't set up to, you know, celebrate those, those failures. So.
1: Yes, I think one of the one of the great things about software engineering is um, something that I recently read or heard somewhere, I think it's an interesting perspective. So I'm gonna share it with you. It's um yeah. in school, they always uh, are teaching us. So you, are only in the performance zone when you are taking a test or you're you're trying to jump a grade or or whatever. But usually you are in the learning zone where you are expected to to get new stuff in your heads. And then when we enter the workforce, a lot of the times it becomes only the performance zone, and people are not expected to fail because they are expected to perform based on the a relatively short period of their their life when they were learning things and yeah. so i think with software engineering it's it's expected to keep on growing and learning all the time because otherwise you're going to be left out of new tech and hot and cool things that are that are out in the world so maybe it's like inherent in the software industry where you are always learning and always kind of trying to perform at the same time.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it hurts like, you know, be switching through all the technologies that I've seen. It, it's one of those things where when, especially when I'm hiring like new, new grads or people right out of college interns, you don't have that breadth of experience to rely on. So you are kind of focusing on, on how, and one of the big things I look for is just how do you learn? Like, what is your process for going about learning something new? Cause like you mentioned, software engineering is, it's literally new stuff all the time. There are, you know, hundreds of thousands of programming languages and it's like, oh, I need to learn this, this new thing. How do you go about structuring that and, and bringing that back? And yeah, I love that, that anecdote you have, it's very similar to an idea. It's probably from the same school of thought, like the, the performing zone, and then there's kind of this area outside that where it's kind of where you stretch it's kind of a management philosophy where you want to get people into the stretch area, but there's kind of an area right outside that, that is like you've stretched somebody too far. They they've kind of distressed at that point and managing that balance between being stretched, but not stretched too much that you, you feel stressed, but getting you outside of your, your comfort zone and kind of the performance area. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a hard, it's an easy thing to say. It's very hard to, to do and make sure you're always getting that because People are at different points in their lives. Like, you know, the pandemic was a huge stress around people. So making sure that all the different things going on in your life aren't what normally would have been a stretch is now in the stress zone and, and making sure you're managing people back into, to not being like, like they're going to burn themselves out. It's why management is so interesting to me. It's just, it's not a solvable problem. I can't take a, an algorithm and put it on every single human and, and figure out how I plug in the different variables and and get this person to, to succeed or grow or whatnot. It's, it's very uh, individual.
1: Right. So that's why it's challenging and fun.
2: Yeah.
1: How do you learn? If you were, if you were asking yourself at the, at the job interview, what, what is your process for that?
2: It's a good question. I was actually thinking about this the other day when I was asked, because the the question I asked to get at this is I asked, people to tell me about the last thing they 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 learned like and I, I don't even care if it's engineering like if you learned how to snowboard or you learned how to do whatever just tell walk me through the process of how you learn something and for me there's no right answer particularly other than you have some structure to how you go about learning new things because people learn in different ways right like some people are visual or, or read books or watch tutorials or just want to get in and and do something real rough and then um, come out with it so for me it's not even saying there's a right or a wrong way to learn something it's just having that structure that you can kind of point to and be like yeah this is how i best learn or if i'm going to be tackling something new i can set up a way that i'm going to to learn this new thing so for me i'm I'm very much a, a, you know, I talked about this earlier, like prepping, like I love reading books and watching videos and getting as much knowledge as I can before I have to, um, you know, put stuff down on on paper. (laughs) I I recently, I had a kid about two years ago and before, uh, it was like right during the beginning of the pandemic, but like before she came, it was my first kid and I was just reading all the books i can like there are so many books out there but i'm just like reading all these different things and a lot of them are super anecdotal like but i remember finding this one book that was very like research heavy and you know it, it spoke to me because i like having you know this is the data, the and data. It's backed up by by these things and like research on kids is very hard because it's a, a, an interest like you can't You can't do much research on kids because it's unethical and stuff like that. So finding, finding those areas where you can kind of do broader research and, and learning some of that stuff. So I don't know, for me, it's, it's very much that way, but there's no right or wrong answer. I don't think just that you have, have a structure for how you, you go about things. Um, And
1: probably some passion about learning stuff.
2: Yeah. I mean, that, that's the big thing. Like, um, one of the things I look for when what I'm hiring is, is curiosity. Like, do you just look at something and take it at, at face value? Or do you kind of want to understand how something ticks, right? Like, you know, there's, there's a lot of different layers to software engineering. When you're thinking about something like JavaScript or uh, even Unreal Engine, you've got like a garbage collector on the back end that's taking all your data and, and managing it for you. And it's like, you can kind of just be like, oh, yeah, that, that's the thing that, that manages all that. Or you can, you know, dive in and you can be like, hey, how does this actually work? What are the things that I'm building on top of? Um, and for me, those are kind of two different people, maybe. Like the, the ones who kind of just take it at face value and the ones who are like, actually, what is going on there? And it's only one example. You don't have to know how a garbage collector works necessarily. <laughs> but like, what what are the different things you find interesting? Where do you where do you dive in at? um what gets you curious so
1: (laughs) thank you um and now about learning um i'm circling back to our uh topic at hand Uh, you mentioned that you're in the early stages and uh, that you have this um, huge customer base called your own engineers (laughs) um Do you at all, and if you do, how much do you pay attention to potential competitors of the, of the product you're building?
2: Yeah. In our area, first person shooters, there's a lot of competitors. So it's a very, um, dense space. So I think we'd be stupid not to look at other competitors and see, see what they're doing. But that's not to say you should make any like knee-jerk reactions to what other other people are doing. Obviously, we have our own goals and our ideas for what we want. And uh, you know, if something truly like innovative comes out, obviously we're paying attention to that as to how we can learn from that, kind of bring it in. So, I mean, it's it's definitely something where I mean, we we love playing games. So it's like you know, telling somebody that they've got to go. Play the hottest title that's out there. It's not a, it's not a huge ass for most people on my team. In fact, uh, they they probably prefer it. I mean, EA is like a, a game stipend that you can go and and buy buy games because we expect people to, to play games. So
1: nice, nice. So you you aren't actually like out there watching the watching the competition, but you are having your own people play those games and maybe take the.
2: Hottest ideas. We're obviously looking at announcements and uh-huh. and talking with like. There's there's a lot of game industry stuff that goes on. Uh, GDC, the Game Developers Conference, just happened. That's usually a great place for like new ideas and techniques to come out. And, and you know, hopefully, it's something where we're always kind of building on each other. But yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, we're we're trying to build a game that speaks to a lot of people. So there's a lot of space for a lot of games out there. It's not like a a winner takes all kind of situation either. So it doesn't even most of the time when I'm talking with people at other studios and it doesn't even feel very like, we're not like cutthroat or anything. So it's it's very much like there's so many like niche audiences or just like these people play a lot of games in the space. So there is room for a lot of different things going on. It's kind of like, you know, movies, obviously it's like, One movie coming out doesn't mean another movie is not going to get anybody watching it, right? Yeah. As opposed to maybe some of the other models that tech takes, where it's like Facebook wants everybody (laughs) using Facebook, right? Um, Right.
1: Right. Thank you. I think that's a really great message to to end on a high note. It's a win 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 situation, (laughs) kind of. Hopefully, we have talked about a lot of things about processes that you have implemented and. About enabling your your engineers to share their ideas and creating that safe psychological environment where they can come up with constructive ideas. And is there anything else that you would like to add? Anything that really excites you, or anything that you would like to share with our audience?
2: Probably just be easy on yourself. I think we're we're all kind of learning in this this pandemic how. Is it an endemic now? What, is, what are we calling it? <laughs> um, when I thought about going remote, it, it was it was a huge challenge in, in my head, and I think every every day I go to work and we're trying to figure out how we we do this new thing. We got to realize how little time we've we've had with it comparatively to to in work. So I, I think. Going with the flow, just making sure that you're always open to kind of new ways of doing stuff. Because I think over the last two years, the the things I've learned about just watching people in tiny boxes and trying to trying to work in that um, that environment it's been it's been huge. And I think there's still just a lot to learn there. That I don't know. That's why I like watching podcasts like this to see how other people are handling the situation. Because I mean, it's it's definitely not a one size fits all kind of situation either. So it's like, you know, you're pulling from, from different pieces and, oh, I think that'll work for us. Or, oh no, I don't think that's going to work for us because of X reason or whatnot. There's a lot of different information out there and it's just, let's, let's help each other out.
1: Thank you. I, I think, I think that's a great message. With that said, we are at the end of our conversation. I thank you very much for joining me. Where can our listeners get in touch with you or follow your work?
2: For me, I think LinkedIn is probably one of the best places. I'm also on Twitter at Charles Roman. Those are probably the two places I'm, I'm most active. Otherwise, my work ends up being uh, very uh, tied down due to NDAs. So there's not a lot of public uh, stuff that I end up getting to post. I mean, even the game I worked on, at at riot the last six years hasn't launched yet. So there's just, (laughs) there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of stuff I can't talk about there, which is always kind of the interesting part of part of games. You work on things for a long time and love when they come out, but there's so much secrecy leading up to that. But yeah, I think uh, Twitter or LinkedIn is probably the best place to get at me.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Dearest listeners and watchers, I am Carolina Toth, and I just had the pleasure of talking with Charlie Roman, technical director at Respawn Entertainment. We talked about all the things that come with uh, the upcoming Star Wars FPS game, and also a lot of managerial decisions and changes that one has to make. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you.
0: And I hope to see you next time. Thanks for staying with Level Up Engineering. If you enjoyed this podcast, so will your friends. Share this episode on your favorite social networking platform. To stay up to date with our content, follow Level Up Engineering on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or Google Podcast. Brought to you by Coding Sands, a software development agency building web applications with Angular and Node.js. Check them out at CodingSands.com.